Money FM 89.3, best of weekends. When we consider the pandemic, many people have described it as a black swan event, an event that nobody really could see was coming. My guest on the phone now uh, says that it was anything but a black swan event. Dr. Duane Gubler, the founder and director of Emerging Infectious Diseases Signature Research Program at the Duke NUS Medical School right here in Singapore. Duane, good morning and welcome to Money FM. Good morning, Glenn. Pleasure to be here. Recently, Duane, you had an article uh, that first appeared in the, in the uh, South China Morning Post and then it was in the Today uh, about this notion of black swan events being totally unexpected and unpredictable. And your, uh, your thesis in this article was that COVID-19 was anything but unexpected or predictable. Tell us a little bit more about how you, uh, how you view that. Well, you know, what we've seen, at least for me, uh, my wake-up call was in 1994 when epidemic of plague, pneumonic plague, broke out in India. And it uh, very temporarily, for a couple of weeks, shut down the global airline industry into certain countries, at least. And that was my wake-up call for this. I, I could see that uh, uh, an epidemic that spread rapidly around the world would affect the international air transport system. That would uh, affect uh, the whole uh, system of distribution of um, foods, medicine, commodities of all kinds. And uh, if it's uh, extensive enough of a shutdown, it would create uh, global chaos. At the same time, we had uh, seen uh, global trends emerging, uh, primarily in the uh, uh, post-World War II era, but uh, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, population growth, economic growth in a lot of the uh, countries like Asia. And uh, that drove um, unprecedented urban growth. Uh, much of that urban growth was uncontrolled, and uh, so you ended up with millions of people uh, living in inadequate housing without uh, adequate uh, electricity, water, sewage, waste management, created ideal conditions for epidemics uh, to, uh, to emerge. And every one of those cities has a brand-new airport, or at least a uh, good airport, through which millions of people uh, travel every year. So all of these things converged uh, to actually create ideal conditions for the emergence and spread of epidemic infectious diseases, mostly novel diseases that we hadn't really dealt with uh, before. And so uh, at that same time, we had a series of epidemics that occurred. Um, as I said, the first one that uh, got my attention in in this regard was the Indian plague epidemic. But Shortly on the heels of that, in 1997, we had the avian influenza epidemic in Hong Kong. That was followed by uh, um, Nipah encephalitis epidemic in Malaysia, which affected Singapore as well. That was followed by the West Nile epidemic in the Western Hemisphere, which was followed by SARS. So it was just a whole series of these epidemics. And uh, they all didn't cause pandemics, but uh, they certainly had the potential to. And so uh, many uh, infectious disease uh, experts, myself included, actually uh, were taking a hard look at this and saying, you know, we're, 
we're sitting on a time bomb here. These these uh, uh, infectious diseases can spread very rapidly in today's world of a transnational economic system and modern transportation. Yeah, so, absolutely. We're uh, speaking so with many of us have predicted these these uh, kinds of epidemics emerging. Sure, thanks. We're speaking with Dr. Duane Gubler, the founder, director, Emerging Infectious Diseases Signature Research Program at Duke NUS Medical School here in Singapore. And you started this program in 2007 here at Duke NUS, um, which played an, really an instrumental role in Singapore's effective early control of, of the COVID-19 epidemic. You know, since at least 2007, uh, uh, People have been talking very openly about these types of pandemics and the ability for them to spread. Of course, I was in Hong Kong in 97 during the bird flu there, so we were very much aware of it then. Uh, Over time, this has not been something that has been a secret. You know, everybody at highest levels of government and, and research have known about this. Why, you know, as as we look at COVID-19 and, and the way it hit China, and then it spread throughout Southeast Asia. Why were maybe some of the Western countries so slow to pick up on the severity of this and and the steps that they would need to take immediately in this global world that you just talk about, so much transport, air transport, and others? Why do you think they were so slow to take up the lessons that many of us had learned here in Asia decades ago? Well, there are several reasons. It's uh, complex and uh and, and no, no single reason uh, for that to occur. But basically, it's what I call an out-of-sight, out-of-mind mentality. Mm. Uh, these epidemics don't occur every year. There's uh, sometimes uh, an interval of uh, several years, as many as five or six years between the epidemics. During that time, uh, a lot of things happen. Uh, number one, people forget about it. And uh, number two, uh, a lot of the administrative, political, administrative changes occur, so you have personnel turnover. You have people in uh, policy-making and decision-making positions who have never experienced a major epidemic. They don't look at this as a uh, a critical uh, component of their public health uh, program. And so uh, when it comes to competition for limited resources that most countries have, uh, if there hasn't been an epidemic for several years, a lot of the uh, uh, policymakers uh, scratch their head and say, you know, I don't know why we're going to spend so much money on this. We haven't had an epidemic. And so it gets, uh, it doesn't compete very well for the limited resources that are available. So a uh, number of things like that uh, mm. that um, are put into place. And frankly, you know, I'm very disappointed uh, I'm in, in the response, uh, especially in places like the United States, uh, for, uh, and how they responded to this. Uh, you know, the, the virus emerged clearly in, in China. It was probably um, there in November, maybe even earlier. Uh, certainly uh, by the end of December when it was announced, it had spread widely in China and to several countries in Asia, um, you know, that was a red flag that uh, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the U.S., where I worked for 25 years and helped them build their emerging infectious disease program, that should have been a red flag for them. And as soon as 
that was announced and, and it was uh, known that this was a SARS-like virus, um, they should have immediately activated intensive active surveillance, disease surveillance, in ports of entry from uh, where people were entering the United States from Asia or from probably all of them. For the plague epidemic, we, uh, we did it for all ports of entry. Yeah. And uh, if they would have done that, in uh, the 1st of January, they uh, would have picked the viruses up. There were probably many viruses introduced into the United States and into Europe uh, before they were actually, the first cases were identified. Mm. And so, uh, you know, so by the time they actually uh, got their act together and started to respond, respond the virus had already spread widely in, in uh, most of those countries. Yeah, we're on the line with Dr. Dwayne Gubler, who is the founder, uh, director, Emerging Infectious Diseases Signature Program at the Duke and U.S. Medical School in Singapore. And Dwayne joins us from the state of Utah uh, in uh, in America right now. And Dwayne, as we look now going forward, of course, many uh, nations are starting to uh, reopen, starting to loosen their lockdown measures. Uh, many are are saying it's too early. Um, others are saying no. We have to get we have to get the economies rolling again, and and the some of the infection rates and have gone down enough to do that. Um, as, as you look at across the globe, uh, from your perspective, um, is this now is the reopening happening at the right time, uh, or should there still be further concern of a second or subsequent spikes in COVID nineteen infections? Well, in some countries it's the right time, in other countries it may not. I mean, you have to realize that uh, every country and even communities uh, within countries, uh, in a country like the United States that's so diverse ecologically, uh, they're not the same. Mm. And so uh, you need to look at each area individually and, and look at the infection rates, look at the death rates, look at the hospitalization rates, and, and make a decision based on that. So I think in some places, very definitely, it's the right time. Perhaps uh, it's late. It should have been started earlier. Um, others, uh, uh, you need to be cautious. And wherever you open it up, you shouldn't uh, throw uh, social distancing and the uh, mitigation uh, programs that uh, were in place. You should continue those. Um, so... I think, you know, it's not not an easy uh, decision that uh, one size fits all. Um, you have to look at each area individually. So yeah. uh, I think some areas very definitely it's time. Other areas, they need to be cautious. Isn't this part of the they challenge? I was going to say, isn't this part of the challenge, though? Because it, within this this global world in which we live, where people travel so easily across borders, not uh, not just, uh, for example, state borders in the U.S., but you know, international and international borders in Europe and elsewhere, that even though one country might start to open up and be fine, uh, you know, pretty soon you might have people traveling in from elsewhere that maybe are coming from places with higher infection rates. H- how do we deal with that? You deal with that with. Uh, uh enhanced surveillance, active surveillance. Mm. You, you uh, know where the, the ports of entry is. Of course, uh, in places like Europe where the borders are porous and there are no real ports of entry, that's uh, a little more complicated. In other countries like uh, the U.S. where we have ports of entry that we can actually monitor, you can, uh, and Singapore is the same way, you have uh, areas that you can monitor uh, uh, 
to see if they are coming in. So it's a matter of intensifying surveillance, identifying cases, uh, identifying cases, um, quarantine those or isolation, if you if you will. However, however you do it, but uh, Singapore did this very effectively early in the uh, early in the epidemic. Uh, and they had the same problem that you just identified. Yeah. A lot of people coming in from areas where there was high transmission, which then uh, started a second wave that has been much worse than the first wave. Yeah. Uh, the good thing is, though, but uh, Singapore has still done it right in my mind. You look at their their uh, death rate. It, it is one of the lowest in the world. Mm. And mm. even though they have a high high uh, infection rate, uh, as high as almost, about the same as the United States, 5,000 per million, uh, their death rate is only 4 per million as opposed to nearly 300 for the U.S. So, you know, they, they have done the right thing, even with a large influx of cases. They are detecting them, uh, monitoring them, uh, containing the virus, and more importantly, keeping the death rate low. Yeah. Let's look forward now. Uh, you know, the, the WHO and the CDC and some other kind of bigger agencies have taken a reputational hit in some cases uh, based on how they've handled certain elements of this. As we go forward, do we, do we need a more uh, pan-global uh, organization like the WHO to rein- be reinvigorated to help to guard against or prepare for future pandemics and the response to those pandemics. How do we go forward in a way now that so many countries have had such a horrible experience with this pandemic? Well, uh, the WHO is, is very critical to the process, but they're not the, uh, the solution to the, to the pro- problem. Uh, WHO acts as a coordinating agency in providing guidelines, and uh, that's all well and good. But WHO doesn't have the funding are the expertise really to to implement, uh, develop and implement programs. So they act as a coordinator to, to get on top of this, and I've been on my stump about this for years. Individual countries need to start taking responsibility for their own public health destiny. Most countries, uh, developing countries or resource poor countries, do not take that responsibility. They depend on international funding agencies like the Global Fund, uh, the World Bank, the Asia Development Bank, and OSAID, uh, other other international funding agencies, the foundations, gates, to provide money for their public health, for their vaccine programs. And uh, so if we're ever going to prevent and, uh, these kinds of emergence and... Uh, and uh, have a, a reasonable uh, system uh, reversing the trend, individual countries are going to have to uh, pony up some of their own funding to develop in-country programs. That's If you depend on external funding, uh, international funding agencies, there is no sustainability because sooner or later those funds are going to dry up. When the funds dry up, the program uh, uh, falls apart. And so countries need to uh, allocate some of their own national funds to develop good public health programs, build the capacity. doesn't mean that the, the uh, first world countries shouldn't help, but they definitely should help 
uh, fund uh, and develop the capacity in these countries. But the bulk of the funding and responsibility needs to be carried out by those uh, individual countries. And if we had good surveillance systems, good uh, detection systems and containment systems in individual countries, then, then uh, through organizations like WHO and others, uh, virus can be a virus like this can be detected early and contained before it uh, flies around the world. This is this was the basis for the uh, Singapore uh, Duke NUS um, uh, Emerging Infectious Disease Program is to build these kinds of surveillance systems that mm. uh, working with the neighbors in Southeast Asia to because Singapore is a, a hub for shipping, economics, tourism, and uh, is a logical person or logical uh, country to take the lead in developing and helping neighbor countries develop those kinds of programs. Dwayne Gubler, thank you so much for being on with us today. My pleasure. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.